listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Skylar. And Merry Christmas, everyone. We are looking at the Christmas episode. Oh, yeah. This week, the next to last episode in the Come Follow Me curriculum... What are we going to be doing here in a couple weeks, Skylar? What are we going to be doing in terms of the yeah, next in terms series? Of the podcast, yeah. The yeah. <laughs> Nicene Creed. You're like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Reading? What? <laughs> is this a personal what kind question? What question is this? <laughs> uh, yeah, and we've been toying with what that's going to look like. I don't know. You want yeah. to tell them some of our well, random thoughts? I mean, the bare minimum, we need to go word by word through the creed and it, and show that it's biblically based and, um, you know, historically rooted in what Christians, faithful Christians have believed. Yeah. Um, so that's the bare minimum, but you know, in this area, there's a lot of conspiracy theories assumed by all yeah. <laughs> basically, yep. Yep. whether they are explicitly conspiratorial or not. Um, you know about Constantine and yeah. I mean, honestly, it's yeah. W- would you consider yourself to be a you know conspiracy theory guy? No, <laughs> no, I was as an LDS. A Mormonism You're is not very conspiracy centered culture. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, it's just you know, it's a very superstitious conspiratorial culture, and I was in mm-hmm. it as much as anyone. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that now. Yeah, at all. Now you are more. Scientific and reasonable. <laughs> well, <laughs> cope. I, I mean, I just, who knows? Uh, you know. Oh man, <clears throat> Christmas episode. So you, I mean, you, what what do you do during the Christmas holidays? You got any go to routines? No, no, not really. Nothing. I, I'm trying to think. I mean, not obviously a, a Christmas Carol. Yeah, I love mentioned that Dickens. Yep, yeah, book. Yep, um, the book, not just a movie or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, you? Well, yeah, we do lots of things. I guess I don't know. Nothing particular. Yeah. No. I mean, well, so you know, we do we do all the like we we just love we just love Christmas time. So mm-hmm. we do all the things, but, but we're not, you know, we, we have a great appreciation obviously for the church calendar and things like that, but I'm not Anglican. So I'm not super strict about the timing of when things are done right, and, right. and all that. So we, we, we set up our tree and we, you know, set up lights all, all over the place. And, uh, we just kind of started different family traditions. We walked through, uh, Advent devotional as a family through the month of December, that leads up to uh, December twenty fifth, obviously, and then we have um, we also do something that's like you know how Christians like to steal things that are from the world, and they're like, "Oh, that's cool. Let's Christianize it." Yeah. So you've heard of Elf on the Shelf? No. Okay. So. <laughs> so no, El- I yeah, El- Elf on the Shelf is like a. It's a it's a thing, and it's a big thing. It's like you know, you go to Instagram and you look this stuff up, and it's really cool. All the cool trendy parents they hide an elf in different places, 
And uh, that is kind of a, you know, every morning leading up to Christmas, you have to go and find the elf uh, if you're a kid in the house. And so the kids wake up in the morning and they go find the elf. Well, uh, these people made this Christian version of this that's about a little shepherd boy. And the little shepherd boy um, (laughs) is trying to find his way to Jesus. And so the idea is that he... uh, just gets in all sorts of situations all over the house and gets lost and stuff like that. So the kids have to find him every morning and then he's making his way toward this little stable thing that came with the the kit. And once he gets to the stable, that's when, you know, like, you know, the, the morning of Christmas, you put him in the stable and that's, he finally found his way to where he needed to go. So yeah, just uh, like little ways of building anticipation and things of that nature. And, then we're doing an Advent series in our uh, church this month as well. And so that's good work. We're doing Christmas with Isaiah is mm. the series. So uh, that's good. And then as I've mentioned, uh, you know, if you're in the Provo, Orem, or anywhere near enough area, come out on December 24th. We're going to be... I mean, having both our Sunday service in the morning, but then we're going to have our Christmas Eve service that evening at five o'clock, and that's going to be just a wonderful time. So come and join us for that. That really is one of my favorite things all year. It's uh, just beautiful getting to come together and, um, yeah, just remember what we're being intentional to do during the season, which is to... Uh, just glory in the incarnation of Christ. Yeah. So I, what some of my first experiences with anything uh, Christiany were, was um, my Episcopal step grandfather who of course would always administer yeah. uh, Christmas, Christmas mass, right? Um, Christmas Eve. And I do miss some of that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I <laughs> I wish I understood and appreciated it more at the time. And of course I wish Episcopalianism understood and appreciated it more right. today. But uh, anyway, um, that probably would have been a better answer a few minutes ago. So, yeah, well, you know, you got it in. So <laughs> okay. it counts. All right. Should we hit it? Yeah, let's get after it. Um, so there is not a particular text that is being covered this week. It's just general. It's a general Christmas episode. The title of the lesson is Christmas, good tidings of great joy and a nice picture of a very white baby at the top of the page um, there. So some things just don't change, I guess. Um and the it's titled Little Lamb is the title of the picture. That's the title. Yeah, Little Lamb. Wow. Well, clearly white. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's just coincidence for Mormons, right? <laughs> oh, Given Joseph mercy. Smith's teaching. <laughs> All right. Uh, and really, we're just going to be talking about uh, elements of the incarnation and LDS view of Christmas this week because there's not any particular biblical text. That uh, that they're covering, they are they do reference the gospel accounts in these different things, um, and so we may hit on a few of those passages and and think through some some things there. But um, yeah, there's not 
not just a ton of material. There's only two major sections this week. So let me just kind of walk through these sections and then we can generally jump into uh, a discussion on this stuff. So uh, you've got the typical instruction to the teachers at the top says gospel discussions are spiritually powerful when they're centered on Jesus Christ as you study the birth and mission of Jesus this week so you can see that's going to be kind of the focus is you know the birth and mission of Jesus Christ and we'll see how much they actually focus on that when it comes to even some of the leaders talks that have happened around Christmas that'll be mm-hmm. an interesting thing to consider but they say uh, that we'll seek inspiration from the Holy Ghost to, or the teacher should seek inspiration from the Holy Ghost to see how you can best center your class discussion on the Savior. So that's just another fascinating point of, you know, this think about how you can best center it on the Savior. And from our biblical perspective, there's a no-brainer answer to that, and that's get people into God's Word and study God's Word, and that's going to center you on the Savior. You don't have to be overly concerned with coming up with creative ideas to center people's attention, just teach God's Word. And then you get into the invite sharing section. It says invite class members to share what they are doing or have done in the past as individuals or families to celebrate the Savior's birth in ways that bring them closer to him. So just general time of sharing there. Um, I do appreciate that it is at least seeking to be... um, centered on on Jesus for what that's worth and uh, yeah then you get into the teach the doctrine section and the section uh, or the passage of scripture that they reference in this first section is Matthew 1 18 to 25 and Luke 1 26 to 38 and 2 1 to 20 so those are of course just the birth narratives of Jesus and the subtitle is Jesus Christ condescended to be born on earth And they say, Christmas is a good time to ponder and celebrate the condescension of Christ, his willingness to, quote, leave his father's courts on high with man to live for man to die, end quote. And that comes from one of their hymns. Again, we meet around the board. And they say, to inspire class discussion on this topic, you could ask class members what they learned in their personal or family study this week about who Jesus Christ was before he was born. And then they reference a number of uh, scriptures there. John 17, 5, Mosiah 7, 27, Doctrine and Covenants 76, and Moses 4, 2. Then you could display the image in this week's outline and come follow me for individuals and families and class members uh, as class members read about the Savior's birth. And it's just saying, encourage them to share their thoughts and feelings as they compare the Savior's pre-mortal glory with his humble birth. Interesting uh, thoughts there and and ways of of phrasing some things. But uh, one just immediate thing that comes to mind is this focus on apparently the amazing condescension of Jesus. Of course, to condescend is, is just to come down. And uh, in an LDS system, there's really nothing unique about the condescension of Jesus because all of us had a spiritual existence before we came into the world. So all of us condescended just like Jesus mm-hmm. condescended. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just interesting that they're emphasizing this so much when really the condescension in and of itself is nothing special and nothing unique, right? No. Uh, and uh, I think, and I'll try not to repeat so much from the virgin birth episode early in the year, but 
they have democratized the incarnation, which of course makes it not unique at all. He consent, he condescended, so can you. And as we learned from the war in heaven, you earn your condescension just as he earned his condescension. Now those missions may be differing importance for this life, for this world, for this time, but of course ultimately the goal is to surpass what Jesus did just as he did in what he did in becoming the next heavenly father for another round of worlds or whatever it is. As you saw in the, I can't remember if it was the resurrection episode or the Easter episode, in their manual, right, they talk of the resurrection, him acquiring his celestial body then. And that's why it makes sense to speak of him as the son of God. Now, this Mosiah passage is weird because you have this modalistic monotheism where Jesus is called God, but he's also called the father. Yeah. In that passage, in yeah. passages around it. Um, but in DNC 76, Moses 4, he's the son distinguished from the father. Uh-huh. And, 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 of course, Joseph Smith's edit to the first Nephi passage we're going to get to, he does the same thing, where the original 1830 Book of Mormon, he is the eternal father, he is God, and then he's going to change it and make son of God, mother of the son of God, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it's <laughs> where it's unique, it has nothing to do with the condescension. It has everything to do with his use of his agency to fulfill the mission that he signed up for that we all agreed to in the heavenly father plan. Mm -hmm. And he shows us that he marked the path, led the way. Yep. Yep. They even in the, in this section, in the individual and family manual, they say this, and this is helpful to see how for them, there's nothing special really about the condescension itself. No. Um, they say, even if you have read or heard the story of the birth of Jesus Christ many times before, study it this time with this thought in mind. Quote, Christmas is not only a celebration of how Jesus came into the world, but also of knowing who he is, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and why he came. That's from Craig Christensen in the fullness of the story of, of Christmas. And then they go on to say, what do you know about who Jesus Christ was before he was born. Then they reference those same passages. How does this knowledge affect the way you feel when you read about him? What do you know about why Jesus Christ came to earth? How does this knowledge affect the way you feel about the Savior? You can see this is uh, similar stuff going on here. Um, but then they get into this, and this is what I think makes it particularly clear that there's nothing unique about the condescension. And this is under the next section, the individual uh, in family manual, Jesus Christ fulfilled his mission and made it possible for me to inherit eternal life and say, although the story of Christ's birth was surrounded by miraculous events, listen to this, he would be just, an, uh, his would be just another birth if it weren't for the great work that he accomplished later <laughs> in his life. Right. As President Gordon B. Hinckley put it, quote, the babe Jesus of Bethlehem would be but another baby without the redeeming Christ of Gethsemane and Calvary and the triumphant fact of his resurrection. And that's from a talk titled The Wondrous and True Story of Christmas from Hinckley. So you, you see what they're saying there, friend, is they're essentially saying there, there would be nothing special about the birth of Jesus. He might as well have been anyone else born into the world. Um, all of us are 
you know, part participants in some pre-mortal existence, and all of us, according to an Elias worldview, condescend into the earth. And if Jesus had not done the work required, there would have been nothing special about his birth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that that's fascinating for them to say because, uh, again, um, <laughs> what what about their views on the quote unquote virgin birth? Right? Um, I don't know how that goes into play with Hinckley being able to say something about that because uh, mm-hmm. there was something unique there. But uh, who knows? <laughs> that's a that's another story for another it, day. And it you, is. you can back up to our virgin birth episode way back yeah, at the very beginning of very beginning. all this stuff if you want to hear some more thoughts on that. But. For sure, though I'm still looking for my podcast voice and I'm a bit angry on the episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, content, the content, though, you know, is is there. And, you know, one other thing, too, that is, is amazing is how that compares is, is maybe we'll get to with how Christians throughout history have thought about this event. Yeah. As... Honestly, a level of miracle that may even be beyond creation itself. Mm-hmm. Right. If you think of even the monotheistic religions generally, yeah. they deny a mediator's, you know, they deny the ability of a God to maintain the attributes of a necessary yeah. being that is one yep. while entering into creation himself as one of the characters in the story. Yep. Yep. And and so you know this is not just not to mention a, yeah. just how offensive the idea is to oh, yeah. most other western um, religions or monotheistic mm-hmm. religions mm-hmm. the idea of god taking on human flesh, flesh is, is yeah. unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Um now then you got of course on the eastern side where it is unnecessary incarnation mm-hmm. in an eastern way of thought is unnecessary and ironically enough uh, I think that this is more the side of the line that um, the Elias faith falls on because in Eastern religion, everybody has God within them. Yeah. And so the idea of a creator-creation distinction, as we've been highlighting all year, is not existent. So, you know, what what need is there for some wonderful incarnation event where where God condescends? That's, that's already the reality we all live in. God already is in all of us mm-hmm. in this condescended form and we develop that in whatever way right and that's exactly what uh, mormonism is at the heart where god's an embryo and there's really um, nothing unique or special about a condescension we all are called to do the work that we have for us in the same way that jesus was called to do the work that he had before him and so fundamentally we're the same and there's nothing really special about the miracle of what we as Christians celebrate during Christmas. Yeah, and the degree to the degree to which it is special, it can't be unique. Because if the father's just doing what his father did and the son is, you know, Jesus is doing what he saw his father do and you know, you have to say no, the, to the they can't really mean unique. They might say unique for us, for this time, for this world, but they can't really mean unique. Yep, yep. Um let alone unique in the sense that the Bible would assume that the very God that exists in himself, the triumph God who exists in himself, perfect, complete, absolute, prior to anything created, yeah. is not only going to create, but enter into it for a people. Yep, yep. It's amazing. It, yeah. Um, so yeah, they do ask the question in the uh, Come Follow Me curriculum, what is the condescension of God? And that's an important question to ponder from an LDS worldview 
um, how would you answer what is the condescension of God? Now, interestingly enough, uh, there was an article that came out that you sent me and someone else sent me as well. Um, was it today or yesterday, a couple of days ago, something like that? But it was highlighting the fact that, uh, that you know, President Nelson, it, well, it wasn't highlighting this, it just quoted President Nelson and we were highlighting the fact that Nelson indicates that Jesus was God before he came into the world. And this seems to indicate that as well. What is the condescension of God? Uh, But then we were just talking again before the podcast today. um, What does that even mean? Right. You know, that Jesus was God before he came into the world. Weren't we too? In an LDS way of thought? Right. And it it was funny. We even opened up just, to see what McConkie would do with it, his definition in Mormon doctrine under God. Of course, he starts with saying there's three gods, so that's nice. But he never, he never really uh, defines it well or clearly. He'll say a bunch of attributes that sound like the Christian ones, but we yeah. know he can't mean the same thing, and then ends with man becoming perfect like the Father. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't really have the same meaning, right? I, we, we mentioned... Earlier this month, um, I'm sure we've mentioned it more than that, but I remember putting it in the show notes earlier this month um, for an episode earlier this month about a quote where Heber C. Kimball, and I know Brigham said something similar somewhere, saying that Joseph, that Brigham is a god to him, and Joseph was a god for Brigham, and Peter was a god to Joseph, and Jesus was a god to Peter, and the Father was a The idea is God can, in Mormon knees mean just somebody more progressed than you um but yeah it's it's such a fungible word we focus on the condescension point which it's right to do so but it can mean uh almost anything i mean because on one hand they want to say we all are gods and embryo there's a divine within for everyone but on the other hand they want to make special these three and then others want to include their wives and then there's a debate over that um ironically on this first nephi passage and i'll put the article in the show notes for people that are interested daniel peterson uh wrote an article making the point using margaret barker and others this is commenting on first nephi on this, 17 yeah right? on 11 well 11 11 yeah, yeah. The, the very passage that they just mentioned yeah uh where it and if you read it just uh, chronologically, right? Verse 16, and he said unto me, knowest thou the condescension of God? Sorry, this is an angelic messenger to Nephi, uh, this fake white Native American that didn't exist. But anyway, uh, and I said unto him, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. And he said unto me, right? Notice he, his question was, just know thou the condescension of God. He said, behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of, and of course in 1830 it said God, in 1837, Joseph Smith changed it to the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. And, of course, um, he uses it to talk about heavenly a heavenly mother for ancient Israelite belief and that that's somehow evidence of this Book of Mormon or whatever. And that Jesus is the fruit of the tree, but the tree is what he immediately sees after the condescension of God. I know there are some Mormons who believe that God is actually heavenly mother. Yeah, yep. That you become, you know, whatever the order, there's a Michael God debate on the female side of the line. Mm. So, you know, do you become a Mary before you become an Eve? Or do you become an Eve before you become a Mary? And then, of course, if you throw in that Jesus was married, maybe you need to be a Mary Magdalene, and then you become 
and Eve, and then mm. you become Mary. So, so there's a female side of this debate that, of course, Nelson won't acknowledge publicly. But um, it is interesting that on this very passage, you have a prominent name today that you know is also playing games with this word God, wow. and can it can include the feminine? Wow. Um, not much more on that first section there. As you say music is a wonderful way to invite the spirit into the class. So maybe have somebody perform a Christmas song and uh, just talk about how the hymns make you feel. Um, then we get into the next section here, and we're looking at Luke four sixteen to twenty one. And I'll just read that, and then they reference one other verse as well, John three sixteen. So. The subtitle here is Jesus Christ Fulfilled His Mission, and then it says, which made it possible for us to inherit eternal life. So 16 to 21 says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, so, yeah, that's Jesus saying, I am the one that this scripture was talking about. And I am here, and this is being fulfilled. And just notice what he's saying, that this one is the one who is anointed. He's the one who's going to proclaim the good news to the poor. He's the one who's going to proclaim liberty of the captives, and he is the one who's going to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's going to free those who are oppressed. And, uh, you know, even in that text alone, I would say it's quite clear that Jesus's mission is not to make it possible for people to inherit eternal life. He is yeah. coming to set captives free. Um, you know, there, there's no imagery in the Bible of Jesus going and opening the jail cell and saying, it's up to you, even though you're dead in there, to get up and walk out. Um, you know, Jesus is setting people free by his power. And then John three sixteen, of course, is the other one that they reference, and that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's a well-known verse, obviously. You can't understand that verse rightly if you don't understand the context in no. all of chapter 3, no. which we don't necessarily have time to cover. But even just filling in um, from verse 17 on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that he may be clearly seen that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And notice that's another section where they take a shocking 
revelation in the scripture and make it an of course. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There, there's no Mormon that would be shocked by that verse because, well, of course he loves me. I mean, who wouldn't? Right. right? I, mean, <laughs> so, uh, I would just recommend if, if an LDS out there is wondering how a Christian scholar would rightly read John, get D.A. Carson. Sell your shirt by D.A. Carson's commentary on John. Yep, yep. It is an incredible commentary. Yeah. Yep. That passage, by the way, and again, we're not going to, I won't fill the whole thing out, but John 3. Um, Jesus is really referencing a an incident in the Old Testament when Israel had rebelled against their God, and he sent snakes <laughs> into the camp to kill them. And the snakes were just biting and killing all all sorts of people, and the people were receiving judgment that was due because their hearts were hardened. They were in the darkness. They didn't want the light. And and uh, they begged God for a way of escape, and uh, God told Moses, um, make a bronze serpent and put it up on a stick, and all who look to that serpent will have life. And the whole point that God was trying to make is, your only hope of salvation is in me. Um, you have to look to me. You have to hope in me and and keep your eyes fixed on me, and that is your your only hope and uh he's the one who saves they they wouldn't weren't going to be able to save themselves out of that predicament they mm-hmm. need god to provide a way of escape and of course um jesus is saying i i am the bronze serpent i am the ultimate fulfillment of that and only in me will you find salvation and so of course we know when the lds church even says that jesus christ made it possible for us to inherit eternal life what they mean by that is you have to do all these works that are necessary to mm-hmm. gain that. Yep. Um, but that's not what John 3.16 is saying at no, all. No. Uh, it's, it is saying look to Jesus and believe that mm-hmm. he is your only hope of salvation and you will receive eternal life. Um, it's amazing. It is. Uh, and then also just as far as what the mission of Jesus is, I, I thought when I was reading through this a of John 17 and thought it'd be worthwhile to just read a little bit from John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. Uh, this is a very just intimate moment between God, the son and God, God, the father, where Jesus in his humanity even is uh, praying to the father. And, and he says, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, father, the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, who gets eternal life? All whom the Father has given to the Son. Yep. So is that uh, the possibility of eternal life? No. Nope. Or is that the Father has already chosen who he's going to give to the Son? John 6. It's almost like the same author wrote John 6. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Before the world existed. Yeah. And, I and, always had that glory. And God says, I share my glory with no one in the Psalms. That's right. Yeah. It's amazing. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
These are the people you gave me out of the world. Out of the world. That's right. I, yeah. I've shown them your name. I've shown them who you are in your character, your nature, your attributes. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I've come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And we, we could keep going on, but but that outlines the mission of Jesus, does it not? Yeah. Um, Jesus came not to make it possible for us to inherit eternal life. He came to guarantee and to give the eternal life to all those whom the Father has chosen, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's that's all. It's all of grace. Right. You're you're not in. You don't get eternal life because you did the right things. You did it because you believed in Jesus, and you believed in Jesus because you were one of those who was chosen to receive God's love and grace, and uh, and and that's the reason you believed. So, anyway, right on the cross, Jesus says it is finished. So what would an LDS do to get around that? Yeah. It is finished for him. Yeah. Yep. Isn't He's done with his work. Yeah. He's done for with his work of becoming yeah. a heavenly yeah, father starts. for himself. Yep. <laughs> but no, that's not what it means. Yep. Uh, notice too, the picture right above his mission is of yeah. Gethsemane. That's right. Gethsemane, which is, uh, yeah. His mission. Yeah. That's right. Um, and then uh, they really don't say a whole lot in this section either. Um, they just kind of give some ideas of get together and talk about reasons why Jesus was born and share some different scriptures. What do we learn about his mission from some of the titles that he has given us in the scriptures? So they say, go look up the names of Christ in the Bible dictionary. And then they say, class members could learn about the Savior's missions by reading the living Christ, the testimony of the apostles. This would be worth going through sometime. Yeah. And yeah. Line by line. And then just sharing statements that they find to explain why he came to the earth. And he says, give t- class members time to reflect on their testimonies of Jesus Christ and his mission. And it's share exper- personal experiences, yeah, I, things like that. I, I think that question is kind of amazing if you think about it. One sentence. Could they share personal experiences or stories from the Savior's life. Yeah. So, is that the same level of authority? Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Either one, you know, your personal experiences or stories from the Savior's life. Yep, yep. But that's really all there is to it. I mean, it's uh, pr- pretty much just, uh, you know, I think it's supposed to be, uh, and may- maybe the reason is they didn't want the teachers to feel like they had to do a whole bunch of heavy prep mm-hmm. on a week that that is Christmas, and so they wanted it to just be more open-ended discussion in class and you know that 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 makes sense from one one angle anyway so yeah that's all we got um so skylar what i mean what do you want to fill in for us here on some of the things you've been looking over this week well on this on the mission of jesus i thought i would read a quote from brigham young um just because once again who is this jesus that we are worshiping, right? And I think uh, um, this is, <laughs> and this is in a sermon. Um, let's see, delivered July thirty first, eighteen sixty four. Um, this is a hard hitting sermon. <laughs> you know? 
Um, I've linked to it before this year. Um, this is one of the sermons in which Brigham Young says stuff like this. If mankind honestly believe the Bible with all their hearts, they're bound to become Latter-day Saints. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Um, this particularly on Jesus, on because who he is in his mission, right? Is he a free agent as we are free agents accomplishing a foreordained mission in which he could have failed? Um well, let's see what Brigham has to say on this. I'm going to cut out one section of this, but I think just the flow is important on this quote. I will here say that it is a mistaken idea, as entertained by the Calvinists, that God has decreed all things whatsoever that come to pass, for the volition of the creature is as free as air. Wow. You may inquire whether we believe in foreordination. We do, as strongly as any people in the world. We believe that Jesus was foreordained before the foundations of the world were built. Now, weird way to put it, because he means organized for this time, this part of the cosmos. And his mission was appointed him in eternity to be the savior of the world. Um, better said, this world, right? And we've covered before, Brigham Young is one of the clearest people on uh, different saviors for different worlds. <clears throat> Um, it could mean different sets of worlds under the jurisdiction of different heavenly fathers, but anyway. Yet when he came in the flesh, he was left free to choose or refuse to obey his father. Now, we would say he does have a human will. So once again, I think he's going to straw man our part of our position. That being said, he is a divine. He is God. He's not going to fail in what he does. Unlike man, <laughs> who, you know, throughout the history of Israel um, failed constantly. Had he refused to obey his father, he would have become a son of perdition. So that was on the table. <laughs> Jesus yeah. becoming a son of perdition. And then notice, uh, just like the manual, uh, very Mormon, you jump from Jesus right to who? Us. We also are free to choose or refuse the principles of eternal life. God has decreed and foreordained many things that have come to pass, and he will continue to do so. But when he decrees great blessings upon a nation or upon an individual, they are decreed upon certain conditions. When he decrees great plagues and overwhelming destructions upon nations or people, those decrees come to pass because those nations and people will not forsake their wickedness and turn unto the Lord. Which Lord, Brigham? It was decreed that Nineveh should be destroyed in 40 days, but the decree was stayed on the repentance of the inhabitants of Nineveh. My time is too limited to enter into the subject at length. I will content myself by saying that God rules and reigns and has made all his children as free as himself to choose the right or the wrong, and we shall then be judged according to our works. That's incredible. Just as Jesus will, I guess. So, um, in terms of how statements on Christmas, I tried to find some, you know, I looked through the statements of the LDS First Presidency. I have a multi-volume set of statements from the First Presidency, as well as this topical compendium compiled by Gary Bergera. Some will remember that, I think it's Bergera, it might be Bergera, but um, he wrote that excellent book, Conflict in the Quorum, which we've referenced quite a bit this year. Um, I found a BYU article, a BYU studies article that kind of went through some of these things. And I tried to pick out highlights. And I think these are things that are, this is a great opportunity for clear thinking. Uh -huh. If you can kind of get past the feel good, what is the theology actually being expressed? 
And um, I will also prime the listener into the whole conservative liberal debates theologically, especially centered on Machen's great book, Christianity and Liberalism, which is such a great book, even for the liberal side and seeing the line between believing Christianity and something else that just calls itself Christianity. Yeah. Um, so I found there's a, um, I'm going to save the J- Joseph F. Smith one for last because it transitions into the Joseph Smith birthday kind of stuff. But the David O. McKay, he wrote two that I found very telling. Um, and of course the citations will be in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. He wrote in the Improvement Era, the Church's Magazine in December 1959, um, David O. McKay, a president of the church, right? He wrote something called The Spirit of Christmas, um, in which he says, the danger which arises in our celebration on Christmas is the possibility of subordinating the real purpose of commemorating the spiritual to be overshadowed by the material. Um, those who have clued into Mormon distinctives should see that's kind of weird. If all, <laughs> Really, that's saying some forms of material over other forms of material. There is no spiritual material distinction. But, and McKay knows that. I don't know. I think he's just playing into the spirit of Christmas that we all get, right? Yeah. The reason for the season or whatever. The true spirit of giving happiness to others, that's the, that it's the true spirit, giving happiness to others, the fellowship of good friends, and the satisfying knowledge that Christmas reminds us of Christ's promise of a new and better life must always be uppermost in our minds. And then he says, you know, the heavenly host, um, cites Luke, um, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Of course, that's KJV. We now know that's not the best translation. But um, he says that these are two takeaways or what he calls keynotes. One, notice how vague this is. Faith in deity. He doesn't say Jesus or the Father, just uh-huh. I think this concept of deity, which the Father already has, the Son, if he accomplishes his mission, will achieve. Uh, Faith in deity is the first essential to happiness and peace. And, of course, that's the goal, happiness. And then peace, um, undefined. Number two, brotherliness is the second essential by which this happiness and peace can be maintained. You could almost say, right, the universal brotherhood of man. It is fitting at Christmas to renew our desires and strengthen our determination to do all that lies within our power to make real among men the message heralded by the angels. The source of happiness is within one soul. The source of happiness is within one soul. So springs faith from within. Um, notice that only this objective, no objective, with the object of the faith. So springs faith in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. First then, let each individual admit into in his own heart the true spirit of Christmas. Then let it radiate throughout his home, and a thousand such homes would have a true Christian city, and a thousand such cities would build a true Christian nation. Because, you know, that's what he wants, I guess. He came to give us life eternal. Of course, we must accept this gift. Yet Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but he will not bring peace to the world in any magic way. Magic, right? Because Joseph Smith was never into that. As he has always done, he will grant only according to the law upon which it, like all blessings, is predicated. So once again, it's we're back to the vending machine. You do this, you get that result. Which turns Jesus into what? 
And then he, he talks about, you know, we need to do this and this forgive, whatever, and then peace will be the natural result. That's what he says, the natural result, not a God-given result, a natural result. Then he says this, and notice this subtle inversion of the great commandment. To love God, they must first love their neighbors as themselves. Now, uh, he has another one uh, about a decade later uh, in the same magazine, the church magazine, uh, for Christmas message, the same David O. McKay, called Upon Every Home. And this one, I, I, I to save time, I won't read the whole thing, but it's, it's, it's a stunning quote, really. <laughs> I read the whole thing to you right before. Um, we did this. Um, so this is the Christmas message, is that the responsibility of establishing peace in the world rests not alone upon the leaders of nations, right? It rests upon the individual, upon every home, upon every Hamlet city. Yeah, that's some good gospel news there. Receive this benefit. Nope, nope. Peace in the world. That's the, that's the message of Christmas. So Christ's reality must be sensed. Now we're to sensations. Christ's reality must be sensed by you and by me and the reality of his philosophy. Not his deity. His philosophy must be mine and yours if we hope to advance spiritually. In the march of spiritual progress, there are certain necessary and definite steps. So he's going to tell us these steps in which we spiritually progress. Notice that the path, right? It's not it, um, not very Christ-centered, uh, I'd say. Number one, the consciousness of freedom. That's a necessary step here for Christmas. The consciousness of freedom. This is the principle that began when Christ accepted his appointment to his earthly mission. God desires to make men like himself. But to do so, he must first make them free. Right? To a sense of self-mastery, we cannot rise unless we overcome and conquer temptation as Christ did. Right? He marked the path, led the way. Three, a sense of obligation. Here again, Christ was the example. Yada, yada, yada. Four, a submission of self to the will of God. Man's highest spiritual achievement is to speak and act for the good of his fellow men. That's the will of God. You know, Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, starts with the Shema, right? None of that here. David O. McKay knows better. So this is, uh, today, this is his conclusion, right? Today, the destiny of nations is involved in the all-important question, what think ye of Christ, right? Because this all along, he's been telling us about who Christ is. Now is the time as never before for the so-called civilized nations struggling for peace to answer this question, answer it correctly. Um, because the true spirit of Christmas is the spirit of Christ, which of course um, is there. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith in uh, December 1970 for his Christmas greetings has this line in his Christmas message. You're going to notice a theme throughout this. If we keep his commandments and are true and faithful to his laws, he will bless us here and now and reward us with eternal life in his kingdom in due course. Notice he doesn't put in an asterisk saying, well, sometimes the cause and effect isn't there like Nelson did this last conference. No, no. If you keep his commandments are true and faithful to his laws, he will bless you here and now. So un until it doesn't work. Okay. Um, now, the, here's, <laughs> here's some others. Once again, look past the warm and fuzzy. What is the theology being communicated? Jesus, of course, whose birth we celebrate, and they mentioned several times, of course, that it doesn't matter that in their mind he's not actually born on December 25th. 
He says this, he came to earth as the son of God. Oh, not already as a God, as Nelson just said. Um, This is the first presidency, right? The son of God, the prince of peace, to the degree that we have blended his gospel into our lives. We have partaken of the peace which he came to bring. So take all his all his gospel they call which by which they always mean law. Oh yeah. And the to the degree to which you have blended that into your lives yep. is the degree to which you will have the peace that he came to bring. Mm-hmm. Um the real meaning of Christmas, another first presidency uh message is giving. Uh okay. Giving of self, giving of substance, giving heart, mind, strength in assisting those in need immediately to the horizontal. In fact, there's no vertical. It, they even say heart, mind, and strength that Jesus says primarily is owed to whom? God. And they immediately go to the neighbor. Yeah. Remember, the, I, supposedly LDSism is very conservative. Um, keep that in mind. No, they're not. Yeah. This is, I don't know how this impression <laughs> was ever made. I mean, this is as liberal as Shiremarker or anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, two more short ones. Um, this one here is December 15th, 1954, first presidency message. Uh, don't worry about, let's see, giving of gifts, holiday feasts, get decorations, social parties, or whatever. Don't let it overshadow, quote, the fact that Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ who came to give light, or sorry, sorry, who came to give life, light, and peace to all mankind, pretty different than what he said in John 17, all mankind, and who marked the way by which these eternal blessings may be obtained. That's what he came to do. He came to give it, and how does he give it? He tells you how to get it Mm -hmm. by living as he does. The last one I'll include, this is December 19th, 1925. Um, And then I'll jump to, and transition into, uh, I I have two others, but they're they're, they're on the Joseph Smith birthday point that I'd like to get to, which is, you know, a lot of Christians may not know this. Um, There's been a push here and there to make Joseph Smith's birthday part of the Christmas season. Even even as recently um, as a couple years ago, Christofferson um, did. Uh, Joseph Smith's birthday is December 23rd. I think it's 1805, maybe 04. I think it's 05. Whether or not, so here's first presidency. Whether or not the 25th day of December is the proper date of the birth of Christ, of course, they think it's April 6th, kind of. Early Mormons didn't, but at some point it became the reading of DNC 20 that Jesus was born on April 6th. And we, uh, uh, they cited a talk in which Bednar repeated that, um, I don't think the talk was given this year, but they, they cited it in the manual at some point this year. Um, so, of course, they don't think that. But he, they say in 1925, that matters little. Now, listen to this. We join with other Christian people in celebrating it, it as such. And if we observe it in the true spirit of the master, which is, comma, which is renewing the covenant which we have made, that we are willing to take upon us his name and keep the commandments which he has given, our offering will be accepted. 
Yeah, that's distinctive language of both the LDS sacrament. It's <laughs> so it's almost as if uh, the subtext is the true spirit of the master is only had by those who, you know, engage in those covenants. Kind of interesting. You know what they never do? <laughs> that I see mm-hmm. is lean into the objective event as yeah. biblically understood. Yeah. Apart from all the feel good subjective. And anytime they lean into the objective, what is it? The path that he shows. Yep. It's never the who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, horizontal, feel good sort of stuff. I mean, even the one quote um, that you just mentioned about how we can get the kind of peace that we want to have. Uh, it, it is just classical, the theological liberalism, to focus only on this sort of subjective feeling of peace that we ought to have. And I'm not indicating that there isn't ever a sort of feeling of peace between sure. us and God when we come to understand what Jesus has, in fact, done for us. Mm-hmm. But when you see peace talked about in the Bible in terms of reconciliation, in terms of what Jesus came to accomplish, um, that's not the kind of peace that's being discussed. What's being talked about is the fact that we were hostile toward God, and because we were rebellious and sinful and hostile toward God, God was justly hostile toward us (laughs) as well, that there's enmity between us and God because he is the holy, righteous, perfect God, and we are sinners. And the picture that's painted in the Bible is that there's nothing that we can do to escape from that. And so that's why Jesus comes. He comes to be the one who did not have the hostility of God toward him because he was not born in sin the way that we are born in sin because of Adam. He was uh, he, he came into the world as a man and was uh, pure through and through for his whole life and had the favor of God upon him. He was at peace with God. And what happens at the cross is what we call the great exchange where Jesus takes our sin upon himself and grants us all of the righteousness that he earned through his life as, as a gift to us as if it were our own. And so we gain his righteousness, he takes our sin, and that is what becomes our peace is uh is is we our our sin is dealt with god punishes jesus for our sin so that his wrath is satisfied and then we get the righteousness of jesus so that god's favor is upon us now and forevermore just preached on isaiah chapter 3 or 53 i'm sorry this this uh past week and uh, it's a famous passage he was pierced for our transgressions you want to talk about a passage that outlines the mission of Jesus coming into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the pinnacle verse here, because this is a chiasm, is verses 4 to 6, because it starts in chapter 52, 13, and runs all the way through chapter 53. So 4 to 6 says this, Surely he, being, of course, Jesus, or the suffering servant that we now know is Jesus, that Isaiah is prophesying about, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You know what that means? All of us didn't want to embrace Jesus for who he was or what he was doing. We we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God. We thought, oh yeah, he deserves to die as a criminal because that's what he is. But he was pierced. The Bible says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what we ought to be focusing on in this Christmas season is not fuzzy feel-good um, moments where we are with family and, and friends and are just having a wonderful time. No, what we want to primarily be focusing our attention on, once again, is the objective truth of the gospel, the objective peace that we have between us and God because of what Christ has come to accomplish. And that's not even to say the amazing things that we would want to highlight as regards the incarnation itself. And again, you have to remember when when we are standing in awe of the incarnation as creedal Christians, the reason we are standing in awe is because we have such a high view of God, mm-hmm. and we have such a clear view of the gap that stands between God and his creation. And the thought that God could come down into earth is is absolutely incredible. Yep. So let me just read paragraph one from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. This, I think, is verbatim the same as the Westminster Confession of Faith in paragraph one. The Lord, our God... Oh, and by the way, this is in the article. This is chapter two of God and the Holy Trinity. The Lord, our God, is but one only living and true God whose subsistence in and of him, uh, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, who hath who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light with which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most free, uh, getting at your quote there that we're just as free as God, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, most gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that delight light that diligently seek him and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. Friends, that is a comprehensive understanding of the God that we see articulated in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. one. Jeremiah 10.10, But the Lord is the true God, the true God. Mm-hmm. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Isaiah 48.12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. John 4, 28, God is spirit, and those who worship him must obey in spirit and in truth. 1 Timothy 1, 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Mm-hmm. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. First Kings eight twenty seven. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Psalm 92. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and this world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I got about you know, two dozen more yes. uh, verses that I could work through that I'm, I'm just not going to take the time to work through. But we get these statements of faith, once again, because this is what the Bible teaches. Absolutely. The Bible teaches this God that's articulated. And so when you start to look at who God is, um, and you start to understand how, how incomprehensible he is, and how different and apart and, and holy and set apart from creation he is, the thought that he would take on human flesh and enter into a sinful world is in—it's—it's it's incomprehensible. The, the greatest it's, miracle. It's amazing. The greatest miracle. Can I read a couple excerpts from sermons oh, yes. on the nativity from Augustine? He was. Listen, this is how Christians talk about it, right? And, sorry, I do want to make one comment on what you just said. It reminds me of the Machen quote that when when liberals say Jesus is God, it's not because they have a high view of Jesus. It's because they have a low view of God. Yeah. So when Nelson says a God, when in fact Mormonism denies the very concept of transcendence by which we even begin to understand God, yep. you see the difference, That's right. right? I mean, and we've mentioned this before, but it's been a while that a lot of people focus on the polytheism and it should be focused on with Mormonism. Really, what's at issue is atheism. They don't take the concept of transcendence as we understand it, as even Platonists understood it yep. <laughs> anciently, and then multiply it and make it incoherent. They deny the category. So they have expansiveness in their theology. They have no transcendence. All right, compare that with Augustine, the great church father. He was born, yet is not bound to time. He was born from eternity, eternal, co-eternal. Why do you marvel? He is God. Consider his divinity, and the cause of your marveling vanishes. And when we say he was born of a virgin, this is something extraordinary. You marvel. He is God! Explanation point. You must not marvel. Let our surprise yield to thanksgiving. Have faith. Believe. Let men rejoice. Let women rejoice. Um... He lies in a manger, but he holds the world. He nurses at his mother's breasts, but he feeds the angels. He is wrapped in swaddling clothes, but he gives us the garment of immortality. He is given milk, but at the same time is adored. He finds no room at the end, but he builds a temple for himself in the hearts of those who believe. This is a manifestation of power that is astonishing indeed, but deserving of greater admiration is the act of mercy that he who is able to be born in such a way determined to be born, (laughs) begotten the only child of his mother. He already was the only begotten of his father, and he, maker of his own mother, was made in his mother. Existing from eternity with his father, he is today born of his mother, made from his mother after his mother, but from the father before all things, without having been made. Without him, the father never was, and without him, his mother never have been. would never have been. All right, just one more. I just love these. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as well as the Son of God, born of the Father without a mother, 
created all days by his birth from a mother, but without a father, he consecrated this day. In his divine birth, he was invisible. In his human birth, visible. In both forms, awe-inspiring. So it's just... It's, it's just praise, you know, it's worship. That's, that's the spirit of that's real right. Christmas. That's right. It's the horizontal. It's receiving what has come. And, and notice, too, none of these passages, even the ones they cite for their manual, say, yeah, if he accomplishes his mission, then that. Yep. No. It, it, Mary can sing of the baby in her own womb. My soul magnifies the Lord. Who's That's the right. Lord? Who's yep. the Lord? Yeah. Yep. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Yep. Because when God acts, he accomplishes. That's right. There's no, well, agency and free will and... You know, I you know it's like Chris Roseborough calls this narcissist. They always read themselves into this. Yep, and it's just it's unfortunate. And and of course, where there where there is emphasis on the objective, it tends to be on Joseph Smith. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in events that actually aren't that objective. Yeah, as yep. we've shown all year. Yeah, or just objectively, here are the things that you're expected to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they they can be clear on that. But when it comes to being clear on the God whom we are to worship. Um, you know, as, as you may often refer to it as the, the first table of the law, if you will. Um, let, let's make sure we get God right uh, mm-hmm. before we even think about love of neighbor. Because if we don't get God right, then the love of neighbor part matters not. Um, and, and so, yeah, what we want to do during the Christmas season is we want to fix our eyes on the true God and marvel at the fact that God... Uh, took on human flesh, that Christ came into the world and he became man. It's amazing. Well, do you have any last words? And then I'm going to close us reading the Chalcedonian definition. Just, a, well, I will put in the show notes the stuff dealing with Joseph Smith's yeah. birthday being a day of the holidays. Christofferson quote, just as a summary, Joseph F. Smith um, said that in my judgment, the next birthday celebration to that of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ should be that of Joseph Smith. Um, and of course, Brigham Young taught, aimed aiming the quote at Christians. If you read the quote, um, it, it's aimed right at us. Yeah, and he also blames us for his death. Of course, um, <laughs> says that no one will be exalted uh, apart from Joseph Smith's permission. So you can kind of see this exalted state that Joseph Smith is in, and why. So casually, you, you can have, uh, you know, a Deseret News article about celebrating Joseph Smith's birthday and, uh, you know, some lady uh, of the Joseph Smith Foundation talking about lighting a candle of Hanukkah. So you have an LDS lighting a Hanukkah candle for Joseph Smith. Mm. Um, and, of course, it, it has been a constant theme. Uh, Spencer Kimball even calling Joseph Smith's birthday a holy day. <laughs> and, of course, Spencer Kimball's uh, Christmas message in December 1966 was they named him Joseph. Yeah. About Joseph Smith. Yeah. So, so yeah, that is a thing. Um, yeah. And uh, there's, Sounds like there's more there in the show notes for, for those who yeah. are interested. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's send folks off into Christmas with a Chalcedonian definition. Yes. Uh, this was, uh, of course, part of the Council of Ephesus, which occurred in 431 AD. And the whole point of this council was to further clarify from the Nicene Creed 
some some points on the nature of Christ. And so, listen, follow the saintly fathers, or following the saintly followers, or fathers. Words are hard. Let's just start this over. Following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity, like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days, the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer as regards his humanity, one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one in the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the prophets taught us from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers handed it down to us. That's our Jesus. Worship him. He is worthy. Have a Merry Christmas. We will see you next week for the last Come Follow Me.